Yeah. So you spent the last episode discussing what an array language is. And I'm an academic, so I'm a big fan of discussing definitions. And and to me, array language is a social definition. So my definition would be that it's an array language if you get to talk about it on Arraycast. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got us there. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with us, we have a special guest who we will get to introducing in a second. But before that, we're going to go around and do brief introductions. We'll start with Bob, then go to Rich, then go to Marshall, and then go to Stephen. I'm Bob Terrio, and I am a J enthusiast working on the wiki, and that certainly keeps me busy. I'm Rich Park. I'm an APL programmer and educator working for Dialog Limited. I'm Marshall Lockbaum, former J programmer, former Dialogue developer, and a current BQN designer. And I'm Stephen Taylor, APL and Q programmer. And I think we have one and a half announce- announcements. So we have half an announcement from Bob and then two half announcements from me. So we'll go to Bob first. Okay, my half an announcement is that I, I always say that I'm a, a J enthusiast, you know, singular. Uh, I'm not sure what the referred to is as a group, but collective, I suppose. I'm one of many. Um, I maybe I, I spent this weekend uh, with a lot of the J Software people. Had a wonderful time down in Victoria, and I may be moving towards being the G, J enthusiast. So, <laughs> not saying that there won't be others. Marshall suggested that maybe that was my job to go out and eliminate other J enthusiasts. <laughs> that is not what I mean. I mean like maybe a person who primarily promotes J, and many people will call that evangelist, but I'm, I'm anything but an evangelist. I do not push things on people, but I'm very enthusiastic. So that is my announcement that I, you know, full disclosure, if I start to sound like I'm really enthused about J, hopefully I've felt, sounded that way already, but if I do sound more <laughs> enthused about J, realize that I may be the J enthusiast. All right, so we will have to monitor Bob's enthusiasm levels and uh, get some... What do they call that? Uh, <laughs> metrics or whatever over time? We, we, if we do more YouTube, we may have a sort of a meter on the side that <laughs> indicates how enthusiastic I am. <laughs> All right, listeners, yeah, keep track and let us know if uh, Bob gets too out of control. Um, my two half announcements, uh, the first half announcement is that on my other podcast, ADSP, the most recent episode was entitled The K Programming Language, where... Bryce, my co-host, asked a bunch of questions. Asked a bunch of questions about the K programming language. Um, I can't uh, verify that everything I said was true, but if you're interested in the content that you know gets talked about on this podcast, you'll probably be interested in that episode. And the second half announcement that I just remembered while doing this whole intro was that I gave a talk. Um, just, I mean, when this comes out, it will be a week ago, so just sort of mid-September. That was at the Paradigm Conference sort of uh, the isolangconf.com that we have mentioned before where it was a hackathon for um, high school students and also I think first year university students if they had only taken, you know, one computer science course. And that talk was entitled uh, Popular versus Less Well-Known Programming Languages and sort of compares and contrasts five popular languages versus five less well-known languages, What which is what the hackathon sort of was endorsing to use for your projects. And one of those is APL. So if you're interested, once again, in the stuff we talk about here, you might be interested in that talk as well. So with all of that, you can find, you know, show notes, all the links will be there. And uh, with all that out of the way, 
I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Charles Henriksen. Um, You will have maybe not heard his name before, but at the tail end of our last episode, uh, we started talking about Futhark, which is a language that he works on. So a little bit about Trolls. Um, on his website, you can find him at sigkill.dk and also sigkill underscore DK on Twitter. Um, it says that he's a Danish hacker and a general enthusiast in all matters computing. Uh, he's presently an assistant professor at DIKU. I'm not sure if they pronounce that differently, which is the computing department at the University of Copenhagen. And as mentioned before, works on optimizing compilers for data parallel languages and is currently working on the Futhark language, which is, I think, what we are going to mainly focus on today. But I'll throw it over to Trolls. Feel free to take us back to whatever year you want to tell us a story of you know how you got into computing and how you ended up working on this Futhark language. All right. Well, I can I can take it all the way back to uh, when I started. Well, so my, my history is actually pretty conventional. I was the, when I guess I like playing video games and I had this vague idea that I wanted to do something with computers. Um, and then I remember it was one summer in uh, the summer between elementary school and, and high school in Denmark, which is when you're about 14 years old. I found one of my uh, my dad's old books about, about DOS. And it was it was partially basic stuff like this is here's how you this is what the file system looks like and so on, but it actually went quite far and, and ended with the assembly programming in a 16-bit real mode on, on x86. And I didn't have access to, to a DOS machine at that point, but I really liked the descriptions they had. Especially, I liked the descriptions of the command line, the idea that you could have a textual conversation with a computer. I was used to graphical user interfaces, and this idea that that you could talk to a computer in text really, really gripped me. So I knew that DOS was obsolete, but I heard about this Linux or Unix thing where that, that still used command lines. So pretty much from one day to the other, I installed Linux and tried to learn how to use a command line. And I've been doing that ever since. And then I took the usual path of studying computer science at, at university and learning more and more about programming in my own time at school. And um, yeah, it just grew from there, and I'm still around university, I guess. I mean, academics are just students who never figure out how to leave. So. <laughs> and so that was at 14, you said, that you picked up that book and then ended yeah, up installing Linux like at age 14? That's pretty impressive. Uh, can't say that I was even successful the first time I tried to do that when I was in Oh, university. I wasn't successful. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I installed uh, Debian, and, and Debian did, wasn't, it didn't have the right driver for my graphics card. So the first thing I had to learn how to, how to use VI to edit the X3 configuration file to ask to use a different driver. I have no idea why, why I put up with it or why I didn't give up. <laughs> and today I would have given up. Yeah, well, I guess at, at the time they didn't have like PowerShell, which is kind of similar to CLI stuff for Windows, but... Um, I guess Mac Mac did at the time. Has Mac always had? Yeah, they've always had CMD, right? But that's yeah, not... yeah. But I didn't have a Mac. I love hearing the the command line described as an advance on the graphical user interface. Yeah, it's like still an improvement on its successes. No, I see things like that. There's a company called Textualize that's like the Python rich text thing. The guy who does that is working on an entire framework for building text-based user interfaces. I think people have gotten to the point they're like, man, this GUI stuff doesn't work, does it? No one's figured out how to how to make a good-looking GUI. <laughs> Let's just go back. Let's just... We'll put links in the description to the textualized thing. I mean, it is pretty impressive. There's uh, a bunch of stuff. I mean, if even the J interpreter, when you run it, is very impressive the stuff that they're able to render in terms of the boxing and whatnot. But um, anyway, so you end up going. Did you study at University of Copenhagen? That's where you did your undergrad and your and your. Yes, yeah, I, I did my undergrad at University of Copenhagen. Um, yeah, and uh, we were taught we were taught functional programming, standard ML as the first language. 
Really? Which was, which, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. So uh, I, I picked up Comment Lisp uh, a few years earlier. So I, I was dimly aware of the idea of functional programming, um, which you can do in Comment Lisp even if it's not always idiomatic. And uh, But what, I, what was new to me was static type systems as in standard. I mean, I've done a bit of C and so on, but those are pretty simple. So um, that was that was quite eye-opening. And a few years later, I learned Haskell, and then that's probably been my primary language ever since. Um, I got into array languages kind of by accident or by coincidence. Um, so I was I, I made my way through university by, by being a teaching assistant. Diku has a pretty strong tradition of hiring undergrads and, and early graduate students to help tutor other students. It works pretty well. Um, and I've been a, a teaching assistant in a, in a compilers course under a newly hired postdoc, Cosmin uh, Wancha, who will eventually go on to be the uh, co-creator of, of Foothog and actually the originator of it. Um, and here, and the, this course was built around having the students, they were given a, uh, a draft of a compiler and then they had to finish it. So improve or extend the parser, the type check or code generator, all that's pretty standard stuff. But I didn't really like the way that, uh, that Cosmin had designed the compiler. There were some technical things. It was written in standard ML. And I think some of, I felt that some of the things were not done as well as they could be. So um, after the course was done, he sent an email to the TAs saying that he was starting up a new uh, research effort to construct a compiler for a parallel language. Um, and, and I didn't really care that much about parallelism at the time, but I cared a lot about compiler design. So I joined just to, sh to show off how I thought that a compiler should be designed. Uh, and the first thing I did was rewrite it from standard ML to Haskell. Uh, and uh, I think they only, they only put up with me because I actually wrote some code that worked. I, I don't think Cosmin really cared which language it was in. He just cared that someone was doing some work. Uh, and that compiler, I mean, initially, was some, it essentially compiled a very tiny subset of standard ML to uh, well, sequential C code or passed it to an interpreter or whatnot. But eventually, that compiler grew to be Futhark. Interesting. So maybe before we hop into the technical details of Futhark, for those listeners out there that only maybe heard about Futhark for the last time, last episode, what's the maybe overview of Futhark, the language, for those that haven't heard anything about it? Yeah, so Futhark is a um, is a language in the ML family. So it looks a little bit like Haskell or Standard ML or OCaml. And you, it feels like programming in Standard ML or Haskell or OCaml. And the kind of... Um, win or the benefit of, of, of Fudak is that it can be compiled to parallel code. That's pretty much all it's for. So it has lots of limitations. It's not nearly as nice as standard functional languages, but it, it runs pretty fast. That's the... So uh, basically a, a functional ML language that can be accelerated. And is it just onto GPUs or is it uh, any sort of devices that do parallel comp computation? It's, it's a hardware agnostic language. It doesn't expose any low-level details. Our best compiler generates GPU code, but we also have a compiler that generates multi-core CPU code. And even one that generates code for ISPC, which is Intel's uh, vector CPU language. Okay. So heavy, heavily vectorized CPU code. And what is kind of the state of the language? Is there is it still kind of research level language, or are there co companies or you know teams out there that are actually using this to to run sort of parallel computations? Uh, I I mean it's it is definitely a research language and it's a very obscure language. It's uh, but it's it's documented and it's stable and there are people who are using it for some form of production. I think most users are themselves academics who need to write um, simulations or models or or, or whatnot that uh, are more flexible and can be expressed in just by just putting together NumPy or PyTorch or TensorFlow primitives. But that's need to run faster than than they would if they just wrote them in Haskell. Wrote them in Haskell. 
So there's this kind of very small niche. I'm not even sure, I'm not sure how big it is, whether it even really exists. And uh, the few food that users there are tend to be in, in that niche. I also sometimes hear of companies that use it, but I, I think it's mostly for internal prototypes and experiments. It's it's a very obscure language. I mean, what we're researching is, is, is compile optimizations. It's great if we can create a useful tool, but uh, that's that's more of a hobby thing. The language design is, is my hobby and the research is what's supposed to be my, my job. And this is a... And I'm sort of hogging all the questions, so I'll let I'll let. I'm sure Marshall has a thousand questions that he wants to ask as well. But the last question I'll ask is because you're probably a, a great person to ask this. Is you said you know it's a very small niche that is being programmed for, but I'm aware of you know single assignment C, and you even shot me a note about that. Is are there other languages um, like or is it a, you know just single assignment C and Futhark, or are there other languages or libraries that sort of operate in the same space you know adjacent to Futhark? No, there's that's a bunch of them. Um, so you could you could even argue that uh, code defense, that is the APL compiler that targets GPU, is in the same niche. Mm-hmm. And there's also Dex, which is done by Adam Pasky and uh, and and Dougal McLaurin at, at Google, mm-hmm. uh, which is much which is fairly recent. And and there's a handful of these. Well, there's Accelerate for for Haskell, which is a Haskell embedded language. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a bunch of these, and they are all pretty niche, uh, but but they do pop up. Here and there, those Copperhead for Python ones, but but I'm not sure. I'm not. I don't know of any that are really penetrated into wide use. The closest you can get are probably these um, the GPU DSLs in Python, like TensorFlow and uh, and Jax and so on. They're they're the most similar. Thing. Interesting. Yeah. So we we will put links to all of those for folks that are interested because it's definitely basically like very adjacent to what I do for work. But yeah, all of those. Projects that were enumerated there by trolls. We'll, we'll throw links in the, the show notes for us. All right. I said that was my last question. Uh, <laughs> I'll throw it to Marshall or whoever, whoever's got the, the next thing that they want to ask uh, about Futhark or anything. Go ahead. I don't know if I'm a great question asker because I have read a fair bit about Futhark. But um, one thing that struck me as I read was that you have a lot of um, work done by students um, and often kind of short-term projects. So I was kind of interested about... Uh, you know, how that works, how it is getting, you know, a lot of new developers uh, adjusted to the project um, and getting them to uh, make a contribution in a, in usually a year or so. Uh, yes. So that that's interesting. The, the original motivation for, for doing that was that when I was a student, I, I was really styled for interesting projects. And I had a lot of I had infinite free time as students and to do, and I just wanted something cool to do. So when I became a PhD student and later on a, a, a professor, I just wanted to make sure that the students didn't go through the same thing, that they actually had something interesting to work on. So I tried to come up with interesting projects for them. Eventually later I've grown jaded and I'm just seeing them as a source of free labor, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, originally I didn't really, we didn't really uh, plan on the best way to uh, integrate students and it was kind of random whether the projects worked out or not. Uh, later on, we become more conscious about this, about coming up with projects where the students only have to uh, to study or work on a small part of the compiler because it's, it's a big compiler now. It's a big optimizing compiler for a non-trivial language. Uh, it's written in Haskell, which not all of the students may be be familiar with. So our most successful projects tend to be the ones that focus very narrowly on either front-end stuff or tooling or very back-end stuff because when you're working. In in those areas, you you are, you only have one interface. You are only concerned either with what you call, what get, what you receive from the rest of the compiler, or what you have to pass to the rest of the compiler. Whereas when you're working in the middle of the compiler, you kind of have have two different customers or two different uh, interfaces, both what comes in and what comes out. And you can't change either of those. 
Um, uh, so what kind of stuff does go in the middle? Is that um, I mean, optimization passes? Yeah. So you have some sort of intermediate representation and you're uh, working with that. Yes. And those are tricky, especially the use of the optimization passes that transform the representation. I mean, the ones that are kind of working on the same representation, those are, n- are not so bad. But when you have to do work, um, change from one representation to another or even extend the representation, those are beyond most students, unless they are exceptionally talented or have a lot of lots of free time. Yeah. And and something um, you said, you know, source of free labor. And actually, if anybody's going into academia as as part of what may become a source of free labor, uh, just understand that that is the case. Um, because as I went back for my master's degree, it became apparent that students are used for research purposes or support purposes. If but but, and this is the I, I think the most important thing, when it's done properly, and it sounds like you're doing it properly, trolls. There is an exchange of information, and the benefit that the student gets is they're working on an actual system, and they're getting actual practical experience on what that's like. And that's something that often, if you don't go into these kind of things, you may think, oh, they're just using me. But what they, if they're do- done right, what they're doing is giving you great experience working in these areas. And that's invaluable. I think the only other students that would get access to that kind of experience would be co-op students working in the industry, and then it becomes a question of what company you're working for, how well you're supported. But uh, I, I just sort of point that out there because a lot of times people think, oh, but they're just using me, you know, to do this. But honestly, there is a, a real advantage. If you understand what your advantage could be, you can leverage that into great experience. And just by the questions, the thing when I went back to school to do my master's was uh, when I went back into that, I thought I'd spent 15, 20 years having to discover things in practical applications and suddenly I could just ask a question and somebody would say, well, that's a good question and start to answer the question. It was just like, you mean I don't have to go out and figure out what's going on? You're going to give me a framework to work from? It's until you've been in the real world, you don't have a real sense of how rare and uh you know, affirming that is to just have somebody saying, oh, well, these people are doing that kind of research. You probably want to look at that. Those signposts don't exist when you're dealing in, you know, with things, you're exploring things. There are just no signposts out there. Yeah, usually we would wait to do this maybe at the end, but it seems topical. If I recall, um, I saw a tweet from you trolls that was saying that uh, you actually have open, was it PhD positions, I think? Yes, I have an open PhD position. The um, application deadline is somewhere in mid-October, so I guess the listeners to this podcast will have time to apply. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I was... In the back of my head, keeping going to hang on to that to announce at the end. But seeing as we're talking about it right now, I guess, um, yeah, though we'll put a link in the show notes for if you are happen to be um, looking to do graduate work on compiler design, um, could be something that definitely, especially if you're listening to this podcast, you might be interested in. Um, oh, that's, that's not free labor. You get paid for being a PhD student. This is true, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and about Bob, I think, you're, I think you're very right that the students do get something out of it. Now, I when I recruit students for these projects, first of all, they're volunteers. And, and I may no secret about the fact that these are applied projects and there is some overhead in trying to create um, production quality code. Uh, and I, I and so I start to be honest about it, but and we're still developing our techniques. So the last batch of projects I ran very much like I would and an, uh, like an open source contribution. So I had them open pull requests very early, gave them detailed code reviews all along, and um, 
I mean, that, that worked out pretty well. They were probably, they were probably the most successful batch of, of projects we, we've had so far. But still, there is a significant amount of overhead that is in principle not necessary. You can get a top grade without writing um, production quality code, even for an applied project. But, but some students really like the experience of working on something real. And I expect that, it, that they also feel more accomplished afterwards because they've written something that's actually going to be used. Yeah, there's a form of learning called, I think it's called experiential learning, where you put the student through the experience. I taught an online television course in production um, so that you ran your own television studio. But what you do is you present the students with a series of problems that simulate what a person who's running a television studio would go through and in that case, by the end of, I think it was a seven-week uh, semester, at the end of the semester, they had a very, very deep understanding of what a person running a television facility would feel and understand because they had seen the challenges and realized the trade-offs that you have to make all the time. And that's not something that usually is explored unless you're putting a person into the experience. So, yeah, I think, not to switch topics, but there was, at some point on the stack of things we were talking about, you had mentioned, and you know, I can't recall if we actually got to the end of that question was how you stumbled onto the array languages because you sort of started with standard ml then picked up or common list before that then picked up haskell which you said you've been doing most of your development in and then you said along the way you kind of oddly stumbled into array languages uh, right okay so that's actually also a bit in, uh, somewhat interesting um so uh, the department where i'm at Diku got a grant or created a large research project with a lot of money from the government around 2011 to investigate high-performance financial IT. The project, it was called Hyperfit. And it had a bunch of industrial collaborators. So one of them was uh, was Simcorp, which I think are the largest commercial users of APL. Another was Dialog, um, which you all know. Uh, so because a lot of these, these, these companies, especially Simcorp, had a bunch of financial code um, a lot of it written in APL, and they wanted it to run faster. That was the idea. Financial companies, what Simcorp sells is a portfolio management system to people, places like pension funds and so on. And this system has to constantly compute uh, the risk of the portfolio, how much it's worth based on potential market uh, fluctuations and so on. A bunch of math that I, I never quite managed to understand, but it's very computationally heavy, and a lot of it is written in, in APL. So there was this idea that they wanted it to run faster um, because if you have a large portfolio, you need to be able to very rapidly um, determine how much it's worth. There are some, some legal requirements that I also didn't fully understand. So we had this APL angle. Um, there, is a, there was APL code out there. And we had this, this angle that we wanted performance, which implies parallel programming, and especially in, in those days, uh, GPUs, and, and, and so still GPUs for that matter. So this Hyperfit project investigated many things concurrently. One was investigating how you can analyze and transform APL. So one of my colleagues, Martin Elsman, developed um, a, an APL compiler called TAIL, which did type inference of APL code and turned into a typed intermediate language. Um, and we'll maybe re return to that. Another investigated high-performance functional, uh, high-performance uh, TPU programming. And he did it by kind of working backwards. He, he took... Um, a bunch of of, um, of programs or algorithms, like maybe sequential C++, C++ programs, and then he implemented them in, in GPU code, in CUDA, or in OpenShell, and optimized them as well he could to make it run really fast. And then he looked at the generated code, um, and he, he reasoned, well, how could a compiler have generated this? Because um, the people who, who actually need these computations, actuaries or, or whoever, 
are not going to be writing hand-tuned GPU code. That, that's not within their, their, their purview. So they need they, we had this idea that they needed a high-level language, but we wanted to eventually generate very efficient GPU code. But we worked backwards from, from the hand-tuned code and figure out, well, what kind of compile optimization could have produced this code? And then what kind of language would have allowed those optimizations? And then we kind of worked backwards, and eventually we reach a, a um, an ML-like functional language with basic parallel constructs like map, scan, reduce, which is also the uh, APL array vocab programming vocabulary, essentially. Um, so we kind of work backwards and reach something, the very core of APL, the, the, the static core, you can say, without the dynamic behavior. And then because another um, part of Hyperfit was working on, on actual real APL, they kind of converged and, and connected at some point and... Um, yeah, that was how I got into both parallel programming and and, and APL. And I kind of, I kind of meandered into all of this because I was just interested in writing compilers, and there were a bunch of people there who needed compilers to be written. Interesting. So, th to recap, because I want to make sure I I didn't miss any of the connections there. In 2011, I think that was the year a bunch of grant money showed up because of this, you know, and, and a part of the people funding that was SimCorp and Dialog, who obviously had a vested interest in APL. At that point, was Futhark, Futhark already existed, or no? It, no, it, no, it didn't. So, so Futhark was a language that eventually rose out of this idea that we needed a language that could allow the transformations that would eventually turn into highly performing GPU code. But it was kind of the design bottom up, where we started by looking at the kind of code we wanted to generate. And originally, we didn't even want to create a language. We wanted to create a compiler, and then later on, we would figure out which language that compiler would then uh, transform. Uh, and at some point, we we thought it would be be APL, uh, and at some point, it was actually APL. Um, Interesting. But uh, yeah, um, but if it, but we we really just wanted so we Futhark was originally supposed to be a call language, so an intermediate representation for a compiler, and we always assumed that something else would be compiled to Futhark, and we just gave it a syntax, a surface syntax, only so we could write benchmark programs, so we could test our compiler. But then eventually, it grew because language design is is fun. Um, <laughs> So, but it wasn't really planned that way. And, and the language design part is, as, as I think I mentioned before, not really, or wasn't originally the academic work. That was just the, the hobby uh, for, for me. Interesting. So Futhark actually was initially designed or, or planned to be more of a intermediate language in between, Ex yeah. you know, accelerated, you know, CUDA or GPU code, whatever that looks like. And then some higher level language, which as you mentioned, even at one point was actually APL. Um, yes. Well, the obvious question here is, what's wrong with APL for our purposes? <laughs> okay, so the, at that point, code defense didn't exist. So nobody had compiled APL to GPU code or, uh, or maybe even highly efficient parallel code. I, I wasn't really uh, that in, involved in the in the APL side of things. There's one compiler to single, assign to single assignment C, at least. Yeah, Apex. But I, I think either it wasn't available at that time or it was, I, I don't remember. I, uh, yeah. I think it's available now. Yeah, I think it has been. Um, but so that is what Apple Tail did, right? Um, eventually, more or less. Yes. Um, yeah, so that compiled APL into a language called Tail, which is basically just explicitly typed APL. And it only supports a subset of APL, um, both because, well, it was one person doing it, uh, and APL is a big language. And also there are probably some parts of APL, some of the very, very dynamic behavior that you cannot compile probably but there's a subset of, of well-behaved apl that isn't actually that difficult to analyze for a, for a compiler um, and that was so he created this um, this this tail compiler and he wrote a code generator that generated sequential c code 
And I think they added some OpenMP for multi-core execution at some point. Yeah. But then we also had some some students take this tail, which was uh, compiled from, from APL, and turn that into Futhark. And that was when APL was really the uh, probably the most flexible surface uh, interface to the Futhark compiler. And um, it actually ran quite fast. And we wrote a, a paper about it, showed that uh, you could then compile APL code to GPU code and get significant speed up over handwritten C code. That was, that was pretty fun work. And so just, just so the listener is uh, keeping up with us, because um, I've read a few of the TAIL papers. TAIL stands for Typed Array Intermediate Language, correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and so... Did it sounds like Tail and Futhark were developed at the same time, or was there a? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so I, again, this Hyperfit project was was large by academic standards. So you had lots of people uh, working on, uh, concurrently mm-hmm. on things that perhaps try to solve the same problem, but there was no foundation. So there's a bunch of, of things growing up at the same time, right. and some of them eventually died out, and others uh, kept kept living on, and some of them kind of joined forces later, like like Tail and Futhark did. That's just how it is in academia. There were lots of other offshoots that also. And so at a certain point in time, uh, Tail was being used to transpile or compile um, APL code down into the Futhark intermediate language as it was at the time, because it was less of a of a language as it exists today and more of a sort of IR at the time. Exactly. And this was before Futhark had things like polymorphism, which APL does have. Um, in some sense. So it was actually significantly more powerful than, than Futhark was. Interesting. And so when you say polymorphism there, do you mean like type classes in Haskell or do you mean like rank polymorphism? Uh, right. I mean, uh, parametric polymorphism. Parametric polymorphism. Okay. So even, even more basic than that. Right. Interesting. And so then, and, and what, so we're at the point now where APL is being compiled with tail into Futhark, which is more of an IR instead of a language. And how did things progress from there to where they are kind of today? Well, uh, the, I don't. The tail compiler doesn't uh, work anymore. At least not the part that generates Futhark code, because Futhark changes was like five years ago. So Futhark has, has changed since then. Um, the reason we didn't go uh, further with that is that APL turned out to have some other some handling the full scope of APL turned out to be problematic. Like APL is a big language, and for this to be practically useful on real APL programs, you probably need to handle a significant subset of APL. And when we looked at the kind of industrial APL code that that this might apply to, it was then that code wasn't written in a style that was compatible with, with what Tail could handle. I mean, uh, a lot of industrial APL code isn't really this kind of minimalist, tacit style that uh, that most APL hobbyists or, or enthusiasts like, and that I also like. Um, that's the stuff that that fascinates me about APL. It's more like uh, it's more it's more imperative in style, and it uses a lot of of what you would probably call legacy features. But I don't think industry agrees that they are that they are legacy. Mm. <laughs> so it just turned out to be a lot of effort to handle industrial APL code, and that was effort we couldn't justify putting in because we were compiler researchers. We didn't really want to be in the language uh, front end business. So it was easier for us to just extend the Futhark surface language, uh, the kind of intermediate representation, so we can continue with our compiler research, which was what we were really uh, there to do. Yeah, I think that's actually um, how a lot of compiler work at Dialog went as well. We um, uh, and I, I didn't work on any compiler compiled APL projects, but um, aside from CodeDefense, which is still in progress, I guess, um, like Dialog worked on a bytecode compiler, which you can run, but um, the basic conclusion there was that it's just too much work to get um, all this code that's out there and running and using whatever 
you know, old features APL has that have been thrown in over the years. It's uh, too much work to get that all to run on the compiler. Um, and so what our response to that was to uh, end up working on speeding up the interpreter and its handling of scalar code instead. Um, but you can also, uh, if you're not working at an APL vendor, go the route of <laughs> changing your programming language, of course. Interesting. I did not know that at one point Dialog Limited was working on a, a compiler, a bytecode compiler. Yeah, that was about the first thing that Jay, the Jay's big project when he uh, started working at Dialog. That's JFOD, yeah, not the J programming language. Uh. <laughs> Endless source of confusion. Uh, but yeah, so he uh, he had a lot of compiler experience before that. And so he started working on a bytecode compiler there, which um, it is, uh, it ships with Dialog. It's work, it works, you can run it. Um, I think the I think it's 400 I-beam. Yeah, and the, the usual numbers I hear are roughly two times faster for scalar code if it works well, but um, it's just uh, you know too hard to maintain and all, I think, is the... One of the things you just mentioned was that maybe the tacit or the maybe what a lot more hobby, hobbyists are interested in, that style of writing may be more conducive to parallel programming, at least the way Futark does it. Is that is that... Something that maybe gives us hope that all this, you know, trying to do the fancy little tricks and elegant code, and I think often what Stephen refers to as cool code, um, that kind of progress. Often when I look at, at, at le you know, applications in industry, you're right, there's a whole lot of sequential working through cases, working through selects, those kind of things is very practical. And I'm not arguing against that because it's also actually pretty easy to figure out, which is, I think, why they do it. But when you actually can create something else, the same thing in a couple of lines that does it elegantly and uses the primitives, I suppose that's the reason that it's a little easier to compile to. Is that true? Um, well, sort of. So Tacit isn't really isn't an advantage for a compiler because that's just a question of notation. But what Tacit style does is encourage a data flow that is uh, is pretty uh, that is based on on bulk operations on on data and is kind of uh, well, like I guess an APL will be right to left. So a single pipeline of bulk transformations of data. This is what also Aaron Shu's observation in his in his code even thesis. And that style of programming is very um, friendly to compilers. And interpreters for that matter. That is, that is just a very machine-friendly way of programming, and I think the big lesson of APL is is really that it's also a very human-friendly um, way of programming. And and APL nowadays probably isn't even the main example of that. Um, I think NumPy is probably the the main demonstration that that massively parallel computing based on expressing bulk operations on data structures is both friendly to humans and to computers. That that's NumPy is what I usually point to as my example when I teach this stuff. But APL, of course, did it before anyone else and is still doing it in a more flexible way. Um, and um, yeah, so so it's not about tacit as such. Well, I like tacit because of its of its elegance. But if I have to look at it pragmatically as what what is helpful to a compiler, then it's not really the test style itself. You can give your, your variables names, that's fine. The compiler doesn't care. But uh, but it helps that you are encouraged to think in terms of data flow and uh, bulk operations. Yeah, the, the tacit part of it just becomes what moves you into thinking that way. You, you can introduce variables, and I suppose that's almost a hybrid, I would think, for somebody who's programming, because it in some ways it the explicit looks a little bit more obvious where you're bringing in variables, but the tacit actually enforces you to work that way because you don't have the variables to work with. Yes. Uh, well, 
I don't I, I don't know if enough to say whether it forces you to do it, but it strongly encourages you to write in a way that has that has machine sympathy. <laughs> I like your way of phrasing it much better. <laughs> yeah, there's something that's uh, true in in at least interpreted APL, I think, where it's the array oriented way of doing it is focusing on the transformations and taking you know, applying a small collection of primitives as you can get away with to as large a set of data and then chaining those together. But I suppose when it's a compiler, since it can analyze that ahead of time, it can it can do the joining for you, whereas someone using the interpreter has to like think of those steps sort of independently. And yes, and there's actually also another significant difference here because the compiler does allow you to deviate from this paradigm in ways that are also more machine friendly. Um, so for example, my favorite example of this is uh, computing the, the Mandelbrot set. So in the Mandelbrot set, you have a huge bunch of pixels, uh, points in the complex plane. For each of those points, you need to do essentially a while loop and then count how many durations you get through the while loop before you before you have a, your termination criterion is reached. And then you can turn the trip count of that loop into a pretty color. That, that's why people want to, to compute it. But I, I, that is very parallel because you, it, all of the points can be computed independently. But that while loop in there is not very easy to express in an idiomatic way in, in APL. Because in APL, you want your sequential looping on top and then you do bulk operations on entire arrays. But that's not really a very efficient way to express this because the different points might need to do different um, number of, of iterations through the loop. So you and you really don't want them, some of them, to to exit early. Also, um, I think the idiomatic way to do this in APL is to continue looping across all of the points as long as at least one of them still needs to go through its 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 small little loop, and that eventually involves repeatedly manifesting the entire big array of loops. Uh, sorry, that entire big array of intermediate states in memory and then reading the back in all the time. And that's, that's very, very um, expensive in terms of memory traffic. Now, the optimal way of doing it is just to have a single small sequential loop for each thread or each point or whatever with the intermediate um, values kept in registers. But that's that's kind of a nested thing. You can write it in APL. Um, I don't see why not, but I don't think an interpreter would be able to handle it because it will essentially be an, an each containing a while loop over or over a big array. And I don't think... Yeah, but to a compiler, that's not a problem. It's just, okay, you have a parallel loop, okay? And I'll generate code for the loop inside and then put on a bunch of threads. So that's something that a compiler can do that an interpreter cannot. Um, yeah, it would be a lot slower. Um, although it is a little disappointing to me. So you can't run, well, I guess you could, but you don't want to run, say, you know, four points at a time and stop when all of those are finished. Well, I mean, you can do that, but you don't want. I wouldn't want the human to write the code like that. I mean, that's yeah, it's definitely uh, that's something that you would have to uh, you'd have to be actively machine sympathetic instead of sort of just using the language. Yeah, and I can, maybe maybe a compiler can even generate that for you. Huh. Yeah, that's not particularly difficult. That's essentially how a GPU would execute the code anyway. It would just implicitly do it. Well, I guess sixteen at a time instead of four at a time. So I have a queue of questions that we're going to hop around <laughs> and maybe we'll splice in other folks' questions. So um, that hopefully we can get to all before the end. So one of them, I think it was kind of answered at one point. Um, but the question is that, you know, sort of on the Futhark website, it, it has a description of the Futhark language and, you know, a few of the keywords in the middle are, you know, a, a, a purely functional array language. Yes. And so I, I guess the, and we talked about this a tiny bit at the end of the last episode is, um, what about Futhark sort of 
gives it that array because it definitely looks different. And you mentioned earlier that as you were working backwards from the sort of compiled accelerated code, you got back to this sort of core set of primitives, map scans, reduces, and and that maybe that is part of the answer anyway. So I'll, I'll let you answer, you know, where the array part comes in because it's it's both functional like Haskell and then also array insert your answer. Yeah, so you spent the last episode discussing what an array language is. And I'm an academic, so I'm a big fan of discussing definitions. And and to me, array language is a social definition. So my definition would be that it's an array language if you get to talk about it on Arraycast. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got us there. <laughs> so in that sense, Nafuzak is now an array language, but it wasn't previously. But so I'm actually, if you look at the various things we've written about Fudag over the years, you'll see we're not even consistent in what we call it. Originally, we just called it an array language. Nowadays, I tend to call it a, a functional array language, which is a term that uh, Sven Bodo Schultz, the creator of SAC, came up with. And, and I'm mostly using it because Fudag isn't really an array language in the sense that APL is. It, it lacks a lot of the features that you mentioned that's important. It doesn't have a rank polymorphism. That's probably the most important omission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do have to write your maps. Yeah, you have to write a lot of maps. We kind of actually have an idea of how to eliminate some of those. <laughs> yeah, so you, you think uh, it won't be that way forever is your, your thinking. Right. So um, so rank Fudag is a type language, and that's kind of because I was trained to like typed languages, but also partly because it really helps a compiler when it doesn't have to work hard to figure out what things are. And rank polymorphism, you can do it in a type system, but it's really complicated. There have been entire PhD theses written about how to incorporate APL-style rank polymorphism in a type system, and it tends to conflict a lot with other type system features that you might want to have, like parametric polymorphism. I actually have a suspicion that it's not possible to combine rank polymorphism with parametric polymorphism um, at all. It's simply fundamentally incompatible, Um, but I haven't yet proven it. That's a, a paper I want to get around to writing. So in Fudak, we, we, nobody likes writing map all the time. I mean, it's nice if you can just to make it clear what's going on. But it, when you write very heavy matrix-oriented numerical code in Fudak, it really sucks having to write map all the time. So we have this idea, we have this hypothesis that a lot of rank polymorphism, at least in, in non-APL code, is pretty simple and really just corresponds to inserting a bunch of maps on top, which is also exactly what the leading array axis theory is, is basically doing. Pretty much. Yeah, so we think that you can actually pretty easily in a standard ML type inf- types checker do some kind of map inference where whenever we apply a function, you just check, okay, this function call isn't well-typed, but if we added a bunch of maps on top, would it be well-typed? And then we can just do that. So this would be less flexible than um, than APL-style rank polymorphism. In particular, you would not be able to write rank polymorphic functions, but your function applications would then be rank polymorphic in a, in a limited sense. And that means the type system doesn't get more complicated. Um, in contrast, SAC, single assignment C, does have rank polymorphism, and you can directly write a rank polymorphic function, and you can do all kinds of cool things where you can do rank specializations and so on. Right. But it really complicates the type system, and, and they don't have parametric polymorphism. And, and I think for the reason that it doesn't really work with rank polymorphism. One of the things that occurs to me that seems to be cropping up as a pattern is that you seem to work backwards to what you want to get to. But honestly, you, you laugh, but I think that's really neat. And often when you're trying to approach problems, it's that kind of change in perspective that will open up a problem for you rather than everybody else tries to do the other way and they just keep hitting this brick wall. Well, you've, by going backwards, you actually find a way around the brick wall to getting your solution. 
it at least allows you to think think differently. So um, I mean, there are, there are lots of really nice programming languages out there. I mean, I like Haskell a lot, and I also like APL. Uh, I actually like K a little more, but that's a different thing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, a lot of these languages were written with humans in mind, and then later on, if you try to figure out how to make them run efficiently in computers, and and some of sometimes you get lucky. I mean, when Ken Everson designed APL, he was pretty much thinking about humans. And it just turned out to also have a lot of mechanical sympathy. It was pretty easy to make APL run surprisingly fast. But a lot of languages weren't really designed with, with that in mind. Um, so I, if we wanted a niche, if we wanted to have a language that we could compile efficiently, we figured that we would have to start from, from, from the other direction and start by looking at the code we wanted to, to generate. So um, I've realized that we've mentioned now parametric polymorphism maybe two or three times, and there's probably a handful of listeners that aren't uh, familiar with that term. So I'll do my best to define it, and then trolls can correct me. Uh, so rank polymorphism, we've talked about a, a, about a ton. It's basically implicit iteration where you don't need to map. So scalars work with matrices, etc. Parametric, from my understanding, is when you have a function that works the same way for multiple different types. Um, where And then in Haskell, they have both parametric and ad hoc polymorphism. Ad hoc is where you have same named functions that have different behavior for different types. So you use type classes in order to get that. And famously, Go... Um, has not had parametric polymorphism for a very long time. I think in 1.18, um, they added it for the Go language. But what that meant is that, and this is like my favorite example to kind of give Go a hard time, is that when you want to take the maximum of two integers, you can't do that. They have a max function, but it only works on floats. So in Go, you have to cast your integers into floats, then pass those two numbers to your maximum function, and then you get a, a float back, and then you cast that back into an integer, which... If you are in a language with row-type polymorphism like Python or you know, generic programming in C++, like that seems incredibly backwards that you can't support. You have to write you know, a function n different times for the n different types you have in order to get it to work. Um, and so, yeah, trolls, did I, I get that close enough, or is, is uh, there's things you want to add to that? Yes, but I, I think the, the really crucial part you, you didn't spend a lot of words on. So parametric polymorphism is about writing functions that do the same thing for different types. That, that that's really the uh, that's uh, that's more difficult than it sounds, because for example, when you have the uh, identity function that has type x to x for any x, and and just by that type you can you can deduce that it mm-hmm. it must be either the identity function or a function that uh, explodes that diverges doesn't return anything, and uh, that really breaks down very easily if you allow uh, code to inspect the actual type. Like if you have reflection, for example, that's the most obvious way. Then you then you break per, what's called parametricity. That means that you can and uh, and that means you have risks that the code that is supposed to be reusable isn't as reusable as you expected because it doesn't anymore do the same thing for the same uh, for the same types. And uh, sorry, it does a, no longer does the same thing for different types. And the problem when you add rank polymorphism is that you lose parametricity because you can expect things based on that shape. If you take an A, any A, and you ask for its shape, then you get back a value that depends on the actual type. Because if it's a, a matrix, you get back a, a two-element vector. If it's a vector, you get back one-element vector. So you lose parametricity when you add rank polymorphism. And I don't see a, see a way to uh, to fix that without either significantly restricting rank polymorphism, and then you might not then you might not even want to have it anymore, or losing parametricity, which is kind of the main uh, advantage of parametric polymorphism. Or maybe I'm just too fundamentalist. You would sort of need the uh, if you were to try and extend that. Uh 
parametric view of it, you'd need a different type for each shape of, of array. Is that right? Uh, yes, exactly. And that's how it is when you write. It's, it's impractical, but you. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. how you do it when you write in Futhark, for example. So, um, and the idea, the hypothesis we then have is that most instances of, of array polymorphism really are just about adding more implicit maps at the application side. And if you do that, then you haven't touched the type system and you can get away with it. Well, there are some functions that you cannot write this way. Um, so I, but I also have a suspicion that, uh, so in, in, in APL, rank polymorphism is really important because it's about doing uh, entire flat bulk operations on data and then the next operation and, and so on in, in a pipeline. Uh, nested operations in APL are kind of discouraged because interpreters don't handle them well, because then you have these complicated code inside of your, in your inside of your defunds and the interpreter will have to, what is it, scalarize the outer part or something like that. I don't, I don't remember what it's called. Well, the interpreter just spends more time running because it has to run every time a primitive is applied. Uh, so in, in a, so that's, I think that's why rank polymorphism is is really crucial in APL because not only will it otherwise the code be, be larger, but it'll also run a lot slower. But in Futa, you can say map with a complicated function and that'll just work. There's no performance overhead. So a lot of Futa code, uh, is is more nested than um, than would be good style in APL, and I think that's one reason why we can get away with not having rank polymorphism, only having a very limited form of, of rank polymorphism. Um, so it would be interesting to ask someone like uh, Sven Schultz from Singular Simon C, why they have rank polymorphism because they also have a heavily optimizing compiler, so they don't have this performance requirement. Um, so it may be that they have some some insights I don't about why rank polymorphism is is not just nice to have but but really important even in the presence of an optimizing compiler. But as you mentioned, they don't have parametric polymorphism, and that's if you've right. I've mentioned my sort of array language comparison GitHub repository, and there's a a table on that where I show reduce scan and outer product and how they exist in sort of nine or ten different array languages and. Um, Single assignment C is the only one that doesn't have <clears throat> uh, any three of them because single assignment C doesn't have support for basically generic operations. And when I, I talked to Bob Bernanke at the Toronto APL meetup a couple weeks ago, and he said that basically when he's working on Apex, his compiler that compiles APL down into single assignment C, he just has a bunch of macros, which is you know a very common thing you'll see in C code bases. Um, so it's it's very interesting to sort of contrast these, you know, uh, Futhark, sort of Haskell-inspired, single assignment C, C-inspired, and one has rank polymorphism but not parametric polymorphism, and the other one has parametric polymorphism but not rank polymorphism, and the trade-offs, um, which kind of maybe takes me to one of the other questions that I had is, um, we haven't talked at all about uh, SOACs, SOACs, or second-order array combinators, yes. um, which basically if you go to one of the prelude libraries in the uh, Futhark documentation. It talks about you know map scans and reductions, and even has. I think Futhark is one of the only languages that I know of that has both a reduce and then a reduce underscore com, underscore commutative or COMM, which has basically two different reductions that have different requirements on like the associativity and commutativity, which is something we've talked about in NVIDIA parallel libraries of the fact that we are missing a couple of these. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about? Uh, how do you pronounce them? Is it SOACs or SOACs? That, and yeah, we just say SOACs uh, is probably what you should say. So yeah, those are interesting, and um, those are so these are things like map and reduce and, and and scan, as you said, and these are pretty much all taken from pretty much original APL. 
because AP, original APL did come with a, essentially the core of a very effective vocabulary for parallel programming. Now, APL, unfortunately, got some things a bit wrong because it assigned sequential semantics to them. So the APL reduce is, is more like a fold in that it, it's guaranteed to be left to right execution, which means you can parallelize it because you can pass in. You have no idea what kind of function is passed in. And APLs... Well, what you do is inspect at runtime. <laughs> yeah, you can check it. Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, and the scan in APL oh, is... <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. BQN fixed it. BQN <laughs> fixed it. Uh... <laughs> yes. I think all successor APLs fixed it. <laughs> uh, not really, Jay. Yeah, but 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 it's unfortunate because that was really the core of it. Um, and, and what we realized pretty early on is that you don't really need much more than that. And even things like scan and reduce... Uh, they don't even have to be primitives. It's it's useful to have them as a primitive so the compiler can 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 knows what they are and can generate custom code for them because they are so common. But they're not. You do technically you don't actually need them. They're just they're more for humans than for for machines. Um, so um, they are they are second order in the sense that you pass in the function that you want to use. So for map you give it a function as an argument. You for use you give it an operator. For scan you give it an operator. And um, for, to enable parallel execution, some algorithm Bright properties must hold for these operators. Associativity is the main one for, for reduction. And that must also be a neutral element. And um, yeah, this this has, I mean, most cases, most reductions are with plus or multiply or, or max or something that is known to be associative and, and commutative. Uh, there are a few cases where it's useful to be able to pass in a custom operator, but it it has been our experience that humans are really bad at thinking in, at thinking about associativity. So it's very common for for people to pass to write operators that are not actually associative, and then they get the wrong results because then the parallelization doesn't work out. And that's so. Some of my colleagues would say that it's a mistake to even allow user provided operators because it's so easy to get them wrong, and it's kind of a it's it's a it's a big hole in the language, you can say you can get non-deterministic results. But on the other hand, sometimes it's just so convenient <laughs> and, uh, and can really help performance. To, you can do something very complicated and just one reduce that would otherwise take multiple scans or, or whatnot. And so do these in general, like the special thing about them is that when provided the correct operators with the correct requirements, um, it'll be highly accelerated? Or is, is there something more in terms of like, if you chain them together in a certain way that they'll they'll fuse? Because I, I think it says, what does it say at the top of the page that uh, they can be exploited by the compiler? Like does yeah. exploitation just mean like simple things or fancy things? It means fancy things. So the compiler knows what a scan is and it knows what it reduces. These are primitives in the intermediate language. And that's a few of those. And it has it has a, a fusion engine that knows of how these things can be combined. So you can reduce multiple passes into, into one pass. There is the, uh, we have a flattening algorithm that, that, is, that determines when you nest these things, how they should be flattened out so they can fit on, on non-nested hardware like, like GPUs. So all, everything is ultimately expressed in terms of, I think we have five primitives at the, at the very bottom level. And, uh, and the compiler knows about those. And adding new primitives is something we try to do very rarely because when you add a new primitive, you need to take, you need to worry about how it interacts with everything else. I mean, you have an, a, a combinatorial problem here. It's not like an interpreter where if you, can, if you add a, a new thing, you just have to make that thing run fast in isolation. We also have to consider its interaction with everything else. So we try to keep the number very, very low. Well, I got to hold this over the K people. I'll say, oh, oh your language has 25 primitives. Well, the food park, uh, <laughs> intermediate language has five. Oh, that's the parallel primitives. You also count the scalar ones. We have uh, okay. tons. I mean, you have, we have 
nine 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 built-in types, and each of those has all has a full arithmetic library. I guess there's hundreds if you count all of them. I realize now why I think you have five maps. Is it because you don't have rank polymorphism? Oh, you mean we have uh, actually that's different. Or do they do very different? No, things? so you mean we have map one, map two, map three, map four, and map five. <laughs> yeah, that I, I mean I, I didn't look in in detail. I saw that. No, and that's like, that's oh, that's, that's not rank polymorphism. That's uh, map one is when you want to have a function that takes one argument over one array. Map two is when you want to have a function that takes two arguments over two arrays. So it's just shorthand for uh, first sipping and then mapping. Because it's so it's a notational deficit, not a. And this is actually something that exists in like many functional languages. I think Haskell, Scala, they all like. I think they they have map, they have zip width, and then they have like zip width three, four, five, six, which is yeah, it's it's exactly that. Well, an APL's got this problem pretty badly because it has um, each is map and zip width, so it goes one and two, (laughs) and you can't go past that. So um, actually, K mm. does uh, does do a good job of that. Um, you can map over um, a large number of arrays, uh, but APL does not. A kitten that has entered uh, Trolls is uh, <laughs> well. The kitten's been visiting uh, throughout the episode. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure he. I have. I did feed him. I'm not sure why. He's... <laughs> <laughs> he wants. He wants a mention on the podcast. He knows he hasn't been. Or is it a he or she? It's a he. His name is uh, Toxoplasma Gandhi. What? <laughs> <laughs> I asked the same question when we did the tech check. <laughs> Explain the background to that, to trolls. Yeah, so the, the Toxoplasma gondi is a parasite that lives inside of cats and is uh, reputed to cause a crazy uh, cat lady syndrome in humans. Oh, yeah. Is, is, this, is this the thing that um, you're not supposed to have um, if you're pregnant? Yes, it's, it's mostly not. I mean, it's, I don't think it's dangerous beyond that. It, it affects, um, I think, rodents. It makes them all risk-seeking, so then they get eaten by cats, and then that's the life cycle of the parasite. <laughs> you named your cat after that. We should wrap up, I guess, maybe the last, <clears throat> the last section, <laughs> which was had a visit from a kitten, is to say that it sounds like if you're writing Futhark code, if you can express... Um, a majority of your program, or at least the the computation significant hotspot of it in these SOAC combinators, um, you're going to get a huge performance windfall because of this this fusion algebra that you mentioned. Uh, uh, yeah, but it's not just because of that. It's also because if you just write Futhark, you can write a, a sequential loop, and that's just just that's just sequential. It's not a paralyzing compiler. It doesn't analyze your code to figure out whether it could be whether it can parallelize something that you wrote a sequential. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to use the parallel vocabulary to get performance. And there's actually a wonderful thing called a, a parallel cost model that tells you asymptotically whether something will parallel or not. So, so even without worrying about how the code will look like on a GPU or on a multi-core or, or whatever, you can reason about, well, what I what is the maximum number of sequential um, dependencies I have in my program? So how can I expect it to, to scale in runtime when, when the data set changes? There was some wonderful work done by I think Guy, I think um, Guy Blillock mostly in the early nineties about mm-hmm. parallel cost models as a high level concept. Um, I think you could also write a parallel cost model for for EPL. It's a very very general technique. So that's how I would like programmers to think about Futhark um, or whether that that they write. Not about this fusion stuff. Fusion is just a constant time optimization. It's great when it works and it, it, it matters, of course, but it's not what what gives you the parallelism. It just means you have a little bit less memory traffic. A lot less memory traffic. Interesting. Uh, and I and and Futhark is in many ways kind of a, a low-level language in that it's it doesn't have rank polymorphism. It, it doesn't have type classes. It's is sometimes a bit tedious to write, um, but it does encourage you to think at a very high level about how what your parallelism looks like. 
And I think that's very useful to any program, also programmers in array languages. And in, of course, in array language, most programmers do this already because it's a natural way to, to phrase things. Yeah, we'll um, um, we'll put the link to Guy Blelux. He's got a bunch of great papers, but he also has a website that hosts most of his um, Nestle work, which I'm sure, Trolls, you're familiar with, um, which is his sort of toy ML um, accelerated language where he has a bunch of implementations of algorithms like scans and stuff, which is pretty, um, it's pretty interesting to read through and, and very, uh, illustrative of, of the ideas there. Any, I mean, I, <clears throat> I think we should end with the question, why do you like K better? But before we do that, uh, <laughs> are there any other questions? I feel like we're going to have to have you back at some point because I feel like we've only touched the surface and, um, there's uh maybe what we'll try and do is we'll try and cycle through we'll try and get someone from dex on try and get someone from uh, single assignment c on and uh we can go through all all the array you know parallel languages bring um aaron back on to talk about code defunds the by the way the term that i use for these is uh typed array languages because they all share that static typing yeah that's, a, that's not a bad term. typed array languages so what fit all so futhark single assignment c so everything you just mentioned, Futhark, Dex, single assignment C. Does code defunds count? Uh, no, because it's dynamically typed. I mean, it compiles down to array fire, right? So, yeah. which is typed. But that's And that's the tricky thing about this, right? Yeah, so the, the target is statically typed, but the language is dynamically typed. Um, I think it moves all the type checks to runtime. What about Remora? Yeah, Remora, I assume when you mentioned uh, there's been PhD dissertations written about uh, typed uh, languages with rank polymorphism, you were referring to Remora, and that was Justin Slepek's um, yeah. dissertation. Yeah. Is Remora? I think it's typed. Well, it is typed, <laughs> but it's, it's essentially APL with types. So why isn't it just an array language? Well, because a central feature of APLs is that it's dynamically typed, I would say. <laughs> we're back into that discussion. <laughs> we're back into the last episode of... <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying typed array languages. I, I consider typed array to be a subcategory of array languages. So uh, All right. it is also an array language. Interesting. So now I need to add, we need to whip out uh, my, my... Now what upgraded from a paint picture to a, a PowerPoint uh, Venn diagram, and I got to put a type circle in it now. Um, it's not very Iversonian to care what a decimal point does to your to the computer. Yeah, I guess because he was on a whiteboard, just like numbers a number. And so now we fire up the uh, the YouTube and the uh, Venn diagrams, and everybody <laughs> who's walking their dogs is ripping their hair out. Although I did get feedback that people said it wasn't too hard to follow, so that was that was encouraging. Yeah, and it's got. Uh, I'm surprised. I thought it would only get a couple hundred views. That uh, we're t what we're talking about, trolls, is uh, at the tail end of our last episode. I launched a paint application and started drawing a Venn diagram, and and we posted it to YouTube, and it's. I think it's gotten close to I don't know three thousand or four thousand views now, which. Um, I'm not sure how many people actually started watching it and signed up for the whole thing and <laughs> stayed stayed through it, but. Um, all right, so we'll, we'll have you back in the future. But before we let you go, even though we're a little bit over the, the hour marks, we, we appreciate you staying with us. Uh, you mentioned it uh, at some point, and we can't not revisit this question, that you prefer K to APL. So the floor is yours, Trolls. Tell us why. <laughs> okay, so this is going to be a very boring answer. So the main reason is that my kind of first love as a pro in program language was common Lisp, and uh, K is more like Lisp than the other APL dialects. Interesting. Do you stay up to date with all the different Ks? And uh, Shakti and stuff like that, or uh, no, not really. But when I do program in in K, I use I think it's called uh, Kona. 
I just, I'm not a very advanced cape program. I just pick one of the free implementations and they all support what I need, which is just for playing around. Is Kona, which K is that? Is that K6? No, I think it's three or four. Okay. 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 <laughs> um, so like, uh, like KXK. Mm-hmm. And being a Lisp fan, uh, what about April? Are you, have you followed that at all? A little. I really enjoyed the the uh, podcast you did about that, and I did. Yeah, so there was so APL in Lisp. That's great. But what is one of the things he said? Really, um, I realized was was a phrasing of a, of a thought that I've had for a while, which is that APL is really great for the expressions, but it's less great at the control for the, or that that consensus around it. And in dialogue APL, you have the APL, and it's great. But the imperative things are not really very nice. I mean, the, the, you can do the imperative control for in, in, in dialogue APL, but it's it's not great. Whereas if you had common Lisp around uh, surrounding it and said that's really good at, at imperative control flow and has a great object system and all of that nice stuff, then maybe that's really what APL should should be. It's a, a, the language for the expressions, for the computation, but not for the tedious bookkeeping on top. I haven't actually tried April, but uh, it's close to what I think may actually be a, a good design for a language or a programming environment or whatever you want to call it. I, I think Andrew Sengel will be very happy to hear you say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's, and he'll, I'll probably get an email about that and we'll put a link in back to that episode because it was interesting and he is using a combination of of uh, Lisp and APL and using Lisp for a lot of the imperative stuff that allows more flexibility in controlling the structure of, of your program. Yeah, it's, I mean, I can't, do we enumerate the list when we had Andrew on? Because there was basically APL in Common Lisp, aka April, APL in Python, aka Pineapple, uh, APL in Julia, which I don't actually think it has a name, but someone as a lightning talk once implemented some subset of apl yeah there's an apl.jl is i think just what yeah. you call it and so it's it's interesting i'm not sure if there's more of you there's, know there's may as well which is um the other lisp oh closure uh that's right closure. yeah yeah right because may comes after april um, so there's there's what four different implementations of apl in insert language well pineapple is a, a bridge is more of a bridge. or a bridge yeah, um, yeah. it's not an implementation so you're, we're but three. it is kind of interesting to think that potentially like the evolution of apl is more like regex where you end up with like little regex expressions no no you i think you're thinking too narrowly it's more like the the like mathematical notation every programming language supports mathematical notation in its expressions that is also just a sub language yeah you can say plus divide apl is just like that interesting so you're thinking like, you know, take the Julia language where you can define your own Unicode operators and add, you know, the min and max glyphs as extensions to the infix operators of like plus minus and multiplies and well, kind of thing. Well, you have to think bigger. Think bigger, <laughs> so not think bigger. Once, we, once, we once interviewed uh, Bjarne Storstop, the C++ creator, what C++ would look like in 10,000 years. And he said that maybe by then it would have a, a, a decent syntax. And I think maybe what he meant is that the expression syntax would just be APL by that, by that point. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think that's the thing when you talk about shoehorning APL concepts into other languages, you miss the simplicity of like being able to explore with the syntax, being able to just like chuck things together. Yeah, that's 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 true, but you would have kind of a prompt way to do that. I don't know. I mean, they, it's program language design is difficult. Um, yeah, we're saying it's like awkward to have to like write a string representation of an APL program and then have the piece of the, have the sort of interface. Yeah, you, 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 right. You don't want that. You need, you need some kind of textual flexibility in the host language. So it's, so it's not just a string that, yeah, yeah. that you execute. I don't know what it would look like. I think common Lisp has a lot of flexibility, maybe, but. But April still does that, I think. 
Yeah, I think so. It is an interesting thought experiment because, like, you think about, you know, for all of us that work in Linux or, you know, the shell in some other environment, and, you know, how often are we catting the contents of some file and then piping it to, you know, grep and then piping it to wc-l, all of which is, like, in my opinion, just as esoteric as the Unicode symbols in APL. But, like, that's like a bread-and-butter tool if you live in shell, and it's like... We all know that WC is word count and hyphen L is lines and like grepping to search for stuff and can't like we learn this language that is to some extent foreign and like looks odd. It's like what is cat and what is grep and what is WC? But because it's right there, people learn it as this like bread and butter tool. And it's interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment to think about what would a future programming language that has some translated version, you know, if Bjarne is saying in 10,000 years, will actually have a nice syntax. It's like, you know, folks that use that all the time, it becomes just like second nature. It's like we could have some kind of merged, I don't know, Python or C++ language with all of the power of, you know, the rank polymorphic glyphs of APL. And yeah, that would, it would be neat. I would I would enjoy my day job much more if that was <laughs> something like that exists for sure. Um, hopefully, it doesn't take ten thousand years though, because unless if cryogenic freezing happens uh, and I've got the money for that, which I probably won't, uh, I won't be around for that. So, um, all right, I think that's probably <laughs> a good enough place to end it. Seeing as we've um, we've gone over by uh, quite a few minutes here, but thank you so much, trolls, for coming on and talking to us about uh, Futhark and. Everything you know about sort of parallel computation, this has been um, so awesome. I've learned a ton, and, and I have to go now and um, find some papers to read about both Futhark and, and SAC to, to dig in a little bit deeper to this stuff because um, it's super interesting to me, and I'm sure our listeners will yeah. in, uh, enjoy the conversation uh, thoroughly. Well, let's hope so. And really, you should, you should get one of the SAC guys on here. The SAC did everything before anyone else in terms of high-performance, high-level, functional-ish array programming. Yeah, are you familiar with the folks? I know Artem. I don't know um, Boroshuls. Like, who would be the best person? Do you think to reach out to to have to talk about a single assignment C? Um, Sven Bodo is a, an extremely entertaining speaker. Um, Artem's is I actually not seen Artem's present. I, I know I know of him, um, but I was I would recommend Sven Bodo. I think he was also the original designer. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll reach out and try and get. Um... I mean, yeah, and he's he's been working on that since was it the late nineties, early two thousands? So that's early nineties. Yeah, early nineties, all right. So I yeah. mean before before people thought this was a cool subject to work on. Wow. Yeah, we'll throw <laughs> a link as a as a teaser. There is a I think it's a Microsoft I was gonna say Google Tech Talk, but I don't think it was actually Google. It was like a Microsoft research from two thousand six or seven. He went and gave a talk on single assignment C, which is, you know, fifteen years old at this point, but um will be a little bit of a, a teaser for folks that are interested in learning more about um, languages in this space. And uh, yeah, we'll try and get them on in a, a future episode. But once again, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been absolutely awesome. And um, with that, we will say, oh, wait, Bob's got one more thing to say. I'm just going to plug, you can contact us at contact at arraycast.com. Um, because we've had some very interesting, we've always had really great interaction with uh, the listeners, but uh, I think in the last two weeks we had Scott Lachlan and then Stephen Apter actually came, chimed in again. Some really, really interesting uh, things for us to think about, I think, for our next episode, which is a teaser. I think we're 
going to talk or may talk about Iversonian versus other array languages, but that can all change because we're very flexible, creative people, and who knows what we'll do next. And so maybe you just have to turn to the next episode. Sorry for interrupting what will be the wrap-up for the show. Not, not a problem, not a problem. Um, so yeah, contact at raycast.com. All the links for all of the research and projects and papers we mentioned will be in the show notes. Um, and yeah, with that, we will say happy array programming. Happy, happy array, array programming. programming. And the, the kitten joined for the, <laughs> the goodbye. Goodbye.